Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Let's let's put our heads together. Let's put our compassion together, and let's uh, let's solve this issue. Because right now we have thirty eight hundred and seventy four people out uh, living on the streets that desperately need our help. Hi everyone, this is Bryce Merriman, and you're listening to Homeland Lab, where we're exploring the intersection of homelessness and public space. In a scene seemingly straight out of Breaking Bad, today's guest says the tipping point for him was when a mobile meth lab burst into flames on his street. With that, he and his neighbors started Safe Seattle to push the city to find quote-unquote better solutions for how homelessness and public space intersect, particularly the overlooked space of the public right-of-way where different rules, regulations, and enforcement mechanisms are available to public space managers. Please enjoy my conversation with Harley Lever. Harley, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I guess I wanted to have the conversation start with telling me how you became involved in this conversation around homelessness uh, in Seattle. Sure. Well, I think the the conversation for me started a long time ago. My brother's a homeless heroin addict back in Boston, and so we've been, uh, you know, really trying to struggle with that issue as a family um, and also as a community. Um, we have uh, multiple people in our family who either overdosed, died, or in prison because they've uh, had opioid addiction. Um, we've seen how this plays out uh, in our own community. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of the signs of uh, opioid addiction here in Seattle. So um, I basically... You know, for the last, for the last four years, we've noticed a, uh, increase in homelessness throughout the city. Uh, we see tents, uh, we see, uh, uh, unsanctioned encampments, uh, popping up. We see a lot of RVs, uh, popping up in that. Um, on my street in particular, um, in, uh, Interbay, we had a number of RVs that were, were, you know, there. And I would go talk to some of the people and obviously, you know, legitimately homeless people that uh, were, were struggling and needed help. But we also had a small part of that community that was uh, committing crimes. Mm-hmm. So we had people on tape dealing heroin. Um, in our own uh, neighborhood, we had a 15, sorry, 850% increase in crime. Um, personally, in our own building, we had our community mailbox ripped off the uh, walls twice. <clears throat> and for for two years, from about 2013 to 2015, we had asked the city for help. We were calling the police. We were um, emailing Ed Murray, emailing the city council, and really not getting any uh, any response whatsoever. And then uh, finally one day, about November 19th, I believe, uh, in 2015, I was walking down the street, and there was this burned-out RV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, I mean, it was a scary-looking thing. You just you were hoping the people inside were okay. Um, as I went towards the wreckage uh, of the RV, I noticed uh, that it wasn't just a regular RV. It was actually filled with flasks with residue in it, uh, multiple uh, bottles of propane, um, five gallons of kerosene and in literally hundreds of used needles and um, that was kind of a breaking point because uh, you know for, for us it's like you know for two years we've 
try to be really good neighbors. Uh, we're always taught that you have to work with the police, report crime, uh, try to be do, you know, really good stewards. And it was all falling on deaf ears. And here we have evidence of a, you know, mobile, uh, crystal meth lab. And it was, you know, it was enough, was enough. So I took a video of it and I said, you know, can you people please help me talk to Ed Murray and get his attention? And what I'd found out was and basically. Ed Murray, who's the mayor of Seattle. Yeah, yeah. He, he's the mayor of Seattle. I mean, because, you know, we actually had a coordinated effort among our own neighbors in our building to contact him every Friday. And, uh, and it was just falling on deaf ears. And here we are. And, you know, the first thing I thought of when I saw the wreckage was, I hope the people are all right. The second thing I thought of is, you know, if you're a first responder and you're tasked with putting this out and there's five gallons of kerosene and multiple bottles of propane, um, with hundreds of needles in there, it's like, you know, if it explodes, it's not just, um, you know, it's bad enough to have shrapnel coming from the canisters, but now you're having used needles, um, that are uh, going to be, you know, going throughout the neighborhood. And so, like I said, I, I put a video up and, um, what I found out was there was a collective outrage that had been going on, uh, d- that had been developing throughout. And many of the same people were saying, yeah, we call the police all the time. They said they can't do anything. We tried talking to our council members. They couldn't do anything. And so it started off on this, um, kind of a tragic foot. But from that day, I always said, you know, what we really need is a KOA style RV park. So our homeless neighbors that are really wanting, you know, wanting help and needing help, we can give them access to uh, water. We can give them access to sewage, but most importantly, give them access to services and have it be centralized so that if you're a social worker or someone else who's providing service, you have one place you can go that can help 20, 30, 40 people at a time. Um, and over the next two months, uh, I fought for that, um, you know, precisely and I was fortunate that they actually did set up two RV lots. Mm. Um, the, the great part about that was, you know, they got set up. The bad part about that, it opened up a new chapter um, because we soon found out that the RV lots were extremely expensive. Uh, they were charging $35,000 per month uh, for each lot. Who, who was charging who? It was the, uh, it was the service provider. Um, I think it was Compass Housing is the service provider. And they were charging $35,000 per month per lot. And when you looked at what they were charging for you know uh, it was like four thousand dollars a month for accounting for each uh, for each lot and I'm like, you know I'm a business guy and I'm like four thousand dollars a month for accounting seems to be a lot and uh, and then they had a whole bunch of other charges and you know, I was like well this isn't sustainable you, you can't you can't pay this much money for a parking lot um, and, and expect to be able to help everybody so that it took me to the next chapter where I started looking into the cost and actually what Seattle was spending versus places like Boston and Houston and Salt Lake City. And um, that kind of opened up that chapter. So so um, for people who haven't seen one of those RE lots, like paint a picture of what that looks like and how many people are there and kind of you know what services are provided and, and yep. what it looks like for a neighbor experiencing that. Yes. Yeah, so, so what you would see with a typical RV lot, um, the first ones that were really city sanctioned, um, they would have a lot that was fenced off. They'd put black tarp, um, tarps around the, the side of it. They would have a gate um, where people can go uh, in, in and out of. And it was a 24-hour security. Um, and uh, they had some porta potties there, and they had some uh, some garbage uh, you know, receptacles there, and uh, you know, that was pretty much it. We weren't really invited in to, to really see more, but it'd be a typical you know parking lot, except it'd be covered with uh, 
eight foot high fence that was covered in uh, black tops to kind of keep people from peering in in that. And they had security guards uh, on the front of it. Um, what you see now with some of the lesser sanctioned RV lots that the city is allowing to happen is um, a bunch of RVs generally in an industrial area. Um, and they typically have a lot of garbage uh, around the sides of them. Uh, they collect a lot of different things. They don't have a very good way to dispose of their um, of their trash and so you get a combination of uh you know a lot of garbage a lot of um uh collected uh you know whether it's you know bicycle parts or uh, you know, different things everything from strollers to um you know bicycles anything that i think uh you know, our homeless neighbor at RV might find useful or they could resell, mm-hmm. um, whether it's through scrapping or that. It seems to collect around these. And, and then you have just garbage and waste. And uh, sometimes you'll, you'll find needles. Um, and uh, it's not the most sanitary, uh, not the most sanitary looking um, place. So it seems like those more sanctioned RV lots were a step up away from the un- unsanctioned in that they were providing uh some basic level of sanitation. Mm-hmm. They were providing security yep. uh, for for the people who were living there. Um, you had like a predictability about it, right? Like, sure. Here's here's the spot where I'm going to go. Here's the spot where all the neighbors know that this is allowed and where it's not. Um, and and I think the 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 issue that you're bringing up around the cost of it. Um, and kind of what it means to house people and, and the cost to the city on that. And do, do you have a sense of how many people were at that lot? Like what was what was the per cost unit yep. to house those folks? Yeah, so uh, typically there were t- uh, 22 people, uh, 22 RVs, <clears throat> excuse me, 22 RVs in those lots. Yeah. So uh, the, the city said it was about $1,750 per month to uh, to maintain a spot for that RV. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the RVs I think had 1.8 people in them, I mm-hmm. think statistically. So uh so that you know that was the cost. The, the other big distinction with the, these RVs versus the other places where they were they, you were not allowed to consume drugs in them mm-hmm. or, or be addicted, and mm-hmm. so there was uh, a, a better, uh, a b- less chaos, sure. um, unfortunately, because you don't have the chaos of addiction uh, playing into it, right. and uh, and so they were you know tend to be more sanitary, uh, tend to be more uh, well kept, and and people. Uh, uh, you know, had clear thoughts throughout the day that they could, you know, better participate in their own recovery. Right. So for someone who was able to, you know, hold down a job part time, like this was a great option for them, perhaps. Absolutely. I, I thought I thought it was just a, you know, for me a no brainer. It's like, hey, you know, we have all these RVs spread throughout the city. Um, you're spending all this money with SDOT cleaning up uh, trash and, and refuse. Um, you have a whole, you're spending a whole bunch of money on uh, home uh, on homeless advocates going around or trying to help them let's get everyone in one area where we could uh you know provide services at one spot and uh make it easier for social workers to uh to do some outreach so yeah it was what i thought would be a, a really great solution so so somewhere in there you start a group on facebook called safe seattle which, correct uh so how did that come about and kind of what what is that community meant to do yes so safe seattle actually started out on november 19th when we came with the uh with the 
when I asked for the KOA style RV lot, um, I had posted that video uh, on there. Lindsay Sheldon from Cairo News came out the very next day to ask me about what was going on. And from that day on, from that day forth, I said, Hey, you know, we need KOA style RV lots. So it started, uh, it started there. Um, we've now grown to 3,351 people. Um, all, you know, some of them sharing ideas. Some of, some people are not being helpful. They, uh, um, they post some nasty stuff about uh, homeless, our homeless neighbors. Um, my perspective is always to try to provide solutions. You know, we'll highlight an issue um, and, and say, hey, you know, this is what we need. We need to follow the recommendations on the Poppy Report. And, and the Poppy Report was um, a report done by uh, President Obama's uh, homeless, uh, czar on homelessness. And she basically has helped communities throughout the United States uh help solve homelessness and using evidence-based solutions. So, um, so safe Seattle tries to provide, we try to do a a few things. One, we try to highlight the realities of the unsanctioned encampments. Um, I think people have a romanticized version of what happens in these unsanctioned encampments. And, And when you look into really what's going on, it is nothing less than a human tragedy uh, of epic proportions. Um, we try to uh, highlight uh, crime that's going on throughout the city, and this does not have to do um, with uh, homelessness uh, in particular. This is just any type of crime uh, that's going on. We try to highlight the opioid addiction <clears throat> issues uh, and you know, and solutions. Uh, we try to highlight the fact that King County has lost its detox capacity, and uh, a lot of our homeless neighbors that are addicted to opioid if they said, I want help today, uh, they're looking at eight to 10 weeks before they even might get a chance at detox and rehab is taking them uh, eight to 10 months if they get rehab at all. And so much like our mental health system here in the state, we really need to fix our um, detox and uh, rehab rehabilitation system. So I've been trying to provide evidence-based solutions that Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, and other places use to uh, help get people access to detox, um, both on the state level, but things we can do on the city level. Um, and basically try to, like I said, bring evidence-based solutions, uh, housing first policies. I think we need to become a housing first city once again. Uh, we used to, that, you know, housing first started here. And for some reason we, we've lost track and now we're, we're in this mode of, um, uh, encampment first. And I, I, you know, it really just can't be even in, in our sanctioned encampments where it's really comfortable. I'm sorry, where it's less dangerous than the unsanctioned ones, it's still a miserable existence. Living in a tent um, in the Pacific Northwest during the winter is a very rainy and cold and miserable experience. Um, we have the housing capacity, according to the, uh, the Poppy Report and the Focus Strategies Report. If we start using that housing capacity more efficiently, um, we'd be able to get all of our homeless neighbors inside based on that report. And so... I'm saying let's sprint towards that and let's fix the uh, issues in our homeless uh, services. And, and so that's what Sa- Safe Seattle in a, in a whole is a group of uh, neighbors, citizens, and homeless advocates all fighting to have uh, better solutions. Uh, but the caveat being is we do get some people on there that will say some pretty bad stuff. And we've been uh, trying to be proactive with um, either asking them not to say that stuff, deleting their posts, or banning them altogether. Mm-hmm. Because I, when I when I hear you say people saying pretty bad stuff, 
I'm assuming, like, kind of just bashing the homeless and not offering solutions. Absolutely. A lot of people work out of fear in Seattle. You have to understand we're the number one property crime uh, country in the nation, city in the nation. Um, a lot of people have experienced break-ins into their homes and into their houses. Uh, a lot of people have seen uh, needles and they have both children and, and dogs uh, that they walk around with. Uh, we've had uh, people that were pricked with needles. Um, we've had elderly people that are uh, that have been assaulted and mugged uh, almost on a regular basis. Uh, if you go into Ballard and Magnolia and uh, different um, different grocery stores throughout our neighborhoods, you'll always now see full time security guards present, and that was not uh, that did not happen before. So we have a, a lot of crime that's that's going on, and so people can see it, and and, and so they have um, they get afraid, and unfortunately, um, when some people come to Safe Seattle, they vent. Um, in a very afraid uh, way, and they'll say some nasty things that aren't helpful, um, that are sometimes cruel. And unfortunately, we've been victims of our own uh, success in that we grew, you know, we've grown from zero to 3,600 people, uh, 3,300 people, and uh, we have to keep, we have to have to have a constant training to say, hey, this is not a space to be anti-homeless. Um, this is not a space to bash people. This is a, a space to have conversations, uh, share ideas, let us know about things going on in your neighborhood, and we'll try to shine a bright light on it um, so that the city council and the mayor will move on it. But this is not not a place to be hateful or hurtful um, or not helpful. Right. And, and a lot of what you just described, I think, is is part of the reason that I'm interested in this topic, kind of this nexus between public space and homelessness. Because, of course, you know, we live in the same city. We, we hear the same conversations going on. Um, and, and what I'm hearing you saying is you're seeing the symptoms of homelessness playing out in a lot of public spaces, whether that's streets, whether that's parks, whether that's playgrounds, what have you. Um, which are all government-owned areas, government-managed areas. But what you're not seeing is the front end of the conversation, the or, or back end, however you perceive it, the enforcement, the prevention, um, some of those investments happening. So I mean, from your perspective, wh- where is that gap? If, if, if the signposts are out there saying, we, we need housing first, we need... Um, better investments in prevention, we need better investments in drug treatment and mental health treatment. Where's the gap? And because if any any community was going to do it, you would think it'd be progressive, West Coast, <laughs> Seattle, San Francisco, uh, but oftentimes those are the places where these these issues are manifest most profoundly. Yeah, um, I think where you see the gap is Seattle makes a lot of assumptions about how our city government is run. You know, we, we have Amazon here. We have technology saturating our city. And we all think that Seattle runs, uh, runs the city, uh, based on the same technologies we see all around us. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that they don't. Um, they actually run on a 1980s phone system. So if you're one of our homeless neighbors today and you need help and you have a social worker or a police officer trying to help you, they literally have to call around to every single shelter to see if they have uh, any shelters open. Uh, we assume that there's an online dashboard uh, 
having all the vac- showing us all the vacancies in that 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 does not exist. We, we we do not have that system. Furthermore, we don't have what's called a coordinated care system, and this is a system you would see in Boston uh, and other places. And what a coordinated care system is is they have homeless services, mental health services, addiction services, uh, job placement services, abuse services, all working together and sharing information so that they can strategically help um, our homeless neighbors out of homelessness. Um, Seattle only captured fourteen percent. Uh, or data on 14% of our homeless neighbors. So we don't actually understand uh, the magnitude of our issue, um, specifically what's afflicting our homeless neighbors, and we don't know what to invest in. Um, we don't measure our strategies, so we have no idea who's doing a good job for us or which strategies are working and which ones are not working, and we have no idea what to invest in. We spend $60 million a year here in Seattle on homelessness, and we have one of the worst outcomes. Um, in contrast, Boston spends $24 million a year. We have the same size overall population. They have a far a larger homeless population. They have a worse opioid addiction um, crisis, and they have a worse housing affordability crisis, yet they only have 160 people living on the streets. And the reason that happens is because they have a highly efficient coordinated care system that doesn't translate into people getting on the streets. And they only invest in what works, and they only invest in contractors doing a good job for him and if you read the poppy report and the focus strategies report and again those are the two reports that the city um, um, consultants hired they said specifically that you need to end the cronyism that's happening here with the contracting in seattle you need to make the technical technological um uh, investments so that we can better manage uh, our housing stock so we can have a coordinated care system and we can really strategically move our homeless neighbors back into housing and eventually back on their feet. That doesn't happen here. We, we have information silos throughout our entire system. And this isn't just in, uh, you know, since even just in, if you took the homeless services sector, each individual contractor pretty much holds on to their own information. They're supposed to put it in a database called HMIS, uh, but they don't put it in the, in the database uh, all the time, and they don't uh, fully capture information, and they don't track the progress of our homeless neighbors throughout the system. So until we get the technological uh, infrastructure in place and actually sh- start sharing data like everyone here in Seattle assumes, we're going to continually have these problems because we, we, we can't fix something that we don't understand. We can't make investments in things we don't know what works and what not works. And so that's uh, that's the big gap um, here in Seattle. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think so. And it, it t- certainly talks about kind of the, the back end of it in terms of social service providers, but there's also the prevention question, yep. of, which is mental health, which is uh, mental health is manifest in opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. Um and those are things that at the national level, at the local level, like I hear people saying, we need to invest in this. And yeah. yet it doesn't happen. Absolutely. What, what they don't realize is um, our failure in mental health and our failure in, uh, in opioid addiction is going to cost us so much more in society than we, if we were proactive about it. Uh, and, and we're not. Um, I think Seattle, I mean, Washington ranks 47th in the, uh, in the country as far as mental health um, uh, help. And, and we're failing there. Um, 
King County and Seattle are failing from the opioid crisis. What they don't realize is, and I think they do realize, they don't know what to do. But we have fentanyl's going to move into Seattle uh, with the um, same saturation rate as we see it on the East Coast and the same saturation rate we see it in Vancouver. And we're going to lose thousands of people uh, a year. And we're, we're going to die our way out of this uh, out of this crisis if we aren't proactive. And so what we really need is a massive expansion to detox, a massive expansion to rehab. Um, we need to emulate what Massachusetts did and they've restricted uh, OxyContin and uh, other uh, opioids uh, to a three to five day prescription level because right now Let's let's be honest. The the opioid crisis we're experiencing right now was uh, it caused by our pharmaceutical company. It was caused by overprescription of, uh, of opioids. This is how my brother got addicted. This is how my cousins got addicted. Um, and uh, so we need to be proactive in that regard. The other things that we can do uh, that Massachusetts and New Jersey have done is they've required their insurers to uh, cover uh, rehab and detox services. So they they, they you have. To to have that. Um, Chris Christie has actually taken portions of his jails and portions of his prisons, converted them to rehab uh, facilities to uh, get people off of uh, off of uh, you know opioids and on the right track. I don't think we can act too boldly uh, in, in regard to uh, opioid addiction and mental health services. And I think it's going to pay for itself in uh, dividends in the long run because. Um, the costs of not doing anything are going to far exceed the costs of doing something. So we need to have that conversation. I, mean, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Um, and I'm trying to wrap my head, head around with, you know, there's also the political will question of like politicians pay attention to what people make noise about. Sure. And it seems like, you know, one of the reasons why this homeless issue has become front and center in a number of communities is because people are seeing it in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. right? They're seeing it front and center. It, it's having the impact like you described in grocery stores, in playgrounds, what have you. Um, I, do we need a crisis to make, make this, to fix this problem? I thought we already had one. You know, Mayor Ed Murray had declared a, ho a homeless crisis back in 2015. And I'm going to be quite frank that this has been the slowest response I've se ever seen to any emergency. Um, we, we have to start acting uh, with emergency, but we also have to start. There is a, a big political will. That, that I think the difference between Boston and places like this, places like Seattle is, our homeless services here in Seattle are, are very powerful political organizations. They aren't just about um, helping uh, homeless uh, homeless neighbors. Uh, they're a they're political king and queen makers. If you uh, do things that they like, uh, they're going to put you in a great, uh, a bright and shiny light. If you do things that offend them, they will coordinate people, uh, our homeless neighbors, to go camp out in front of your uh, building and, and and create bad political optics. We should never have a political discussion about homelessness and opioid crisis, period. And if you're ever an organization that's going to use our homeless neighbors as pawns, I, I have a very 
big problem with that because uh, our homeless neighbors are going through enough already. They don't need to be manipulated and used to make a political point. And, and so I think that's what you, see, what you see here. So there is a lack of political will because I think our politicians are terrified of these organizations that will make them look bad if they don't do exactly and precisely what they want. And I think you need somebody to step in there and, and, and calls them out and says, you will no more... It, you will not use our homeless uh, neighbors as pawns anymore. Your sole goal is to help coordinate, get them on their feet, and and, uh, and bring you know have them realize prosperity in their lives back. And I think that by the lack of political will, you're seeing a, a, an extra amount of uh, criminality. You're seeing a lot of overdose. You're seeing a lot of uh, homelessness on the streets. Boston has the same problems as Seattle. The difference is Boston doesn't have uh, social services organizations that are political activists that are uh, trying to make political points. They're they're solely focused on trying to help our homeless neighbors out of uh, homelessness, and they do it at a fraction of the cost. So um, we're going to pay for this, uh, whether it's through tax, whether it's through loss of our homeless neighbors, neighbors whether it's the spread of uh, our opioid um, crisis when because it's not going to just stay in the encampments it's it's going to hit our high schools it is hitting our high schools um, you're you know in Seattle you will uh, eventually know a lot of people that are addicted to opioids that die and and go through what my family's gone through the last 15 years and we we can't be proactive enough uh, about this situation well, and that and that makes me think of another aspect of this which is um I really appreciate you sharing the story of, of what your family has, has wrestled with. And often when I have these conversations with folks, there'll be something that's said after the microphone goes off mm-hmm. relating to, yeah, my, my brother, my cousin, my son, whatever, uh, is wrestling with this demon. Um, and it seems like that stigma, uh, and kind of, you know, the things that we don't talk about in polite society is a big piece of this. And I'm wondering what you think about um, how that weighs into this conversation and whether or not kind of this, this uh, are turning towards social service providers, which, which have a, a really important role, but perhaps we as a community are over-relying on them to solve an issue that we all need to take ownership of. Absolutely. Uh, I think one, you can't be shameful about um, the opioid crisis that we're, we're going through. Or As a parent, my, my, my mother is riddled with guilt and she constantly tries to replay what in her head, what could she have done differently to not have my brother be uh, an addict. And and the fact of the matter is there's nothing that she could have done that any of our uh, family members could have done. It was, it was just a, um, a bad situation. Uh, a lot of them, you know, just started out, they were just drinking beers and they were, you know, they were popping what they thought were kind of like Valium or Xanax and made you feel funny. But what they didn't realize, it was one of the most powerful and addictive uh, opioids ever to be uh, marketed in our country. And so there's, there's nothing that they've done wrong. Um, and the, 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 the stigma... Um, is there, but it, it, sh- it shouldn't be. And it's hard for somebody to explain that to somebody, but, um, 
there's nothing that they've done wrong. And even with our, our addicted neighbors, you know, you, you were set up for failure in that you were also introduced, uh, to an opioid that was going, uh, to make you highly addicted. It was mar- it was marketed that it was not addictive at all. And now you found yourself, um, in a situation that you, you, you know, you have no choice, uh, to get out of. People say, well, you made that choice to stick that, uh, the needle in your arm. You didn't. You were set on a, tra- uh, on a, a road that was going to make you do that. It's not your fault. You're not a bad person. Um, you, you just, you're in a situation right now that you def- best desperately need help. And, um, I don't know one addict, um, that has recovered that everybody in their family doesn't think they're, they're a hero for doing it. So, um, once you do that, once you, once you get out, um, all your past mistakes, and I do that with air quotes, are gone because all your family really wants is you to be back and you to be whole again and be safe. And so, um, there's, there's no shame on either side, whether it's the parent side or addiction side, but we do need an all hands on deck approach to this. And I, I say this from, there's a lot of talk about safe injection sites. The problem with safe injection sites is they are never going to um, scale to the size of the problem that we have today. In King County, we have 69, uh, we have 23,000 IV drug users that on average shoot up three times a day. So we have 69,000 injections. At the maximum capacity. What is a safe injection site? Doing? So a safe injection site is um, what they're using in Vancouver and th- throughout uh, Europe. You'll find these in uh, places that they actually have universal health care. Um, basically, they're a site where an, um, a person suffering from opioid abuse disorder can go inject um, under the uh, supervision of a nurse. And if they happen to overdose, um, the nurse has naloxone or Narcan, which is the uh, the opioid reversal overdose reversal drug so um and they provide other outreach services um whether it's trying to access to detox access to rehab uh medical care so if you have an abscess or other um you know they can test for hepatitis c hiv um a lot of other services, unfortunately, those services aren't uh, used very often that we, we've seen in other uh, other countries, which is too bad. And uh, so these are places where um, people who are addicted go to inject. The problem being here in Seattle is we have 69,000 injections happening in King County every day. And at the maximum capacity, a safe injection site can only uh, only uh, support 500 injections per day. So we're looking at 68,500 injections taking place outside um, of the injection site. So <clears throat> this is where a, com- a community can get together and... This is what we've done in Boston is people get trained much like CPR training. People get trained in how to use naloxone and it's a really easy process, but we can save far more lives if we have widespread distribution of naloxone than we can with safe injection sites. So if you're an, if you're a, a parent of an addict, a friend of an addict, a, a brother or sister of an addict, please go get trained on how to use naloxone. Um, if you're a police officer, fire department, uh, social worker, nurse, politician, you all should be trained on how to use naloxone. And, and I would encourage, even if you do not 
have anyone experience an opioid addiction in your family, please go get trained. Um, you can go get this for free at a lot of places throughout um, Seattle. Uh, you can buy it in Safeway and uh, it's over-the-counter prescription. They'll give it to you in most uh, pharmaceutical companies, but you have an opportunity to save <clears throat> someone's life um, uh, so that they, they have an opportunity to get into de- uh, detox and rehab. Um, so that's what I think citizens can be doing right off the bat. And then secondly is advocacy. We need to demand a detox on demand and rehab on demand for our addicted neighbors. Um, because like I said, as soon as fentanyl moves into uh, our community, we're going to lose thousands of people. And uh, you're going to know some of these people and it's going to be a heartache uh, for you. Um Safe injection sites never contemplated fentanyl. They've only, they were first started when we had black tire heroin, uh, everywhere. Now, like, have we seen, as, as we've seen up in Vancouver, um, they, they've experienced a 500% increase in opioid deaths because, uh, most of their heroin is actually fentanyl. And, uh, and now they're, they're gonna exceed 1400 deaths, which is almost double what they uh, had last year. So, um, we have a crisis. We have to start, uh, Acting with uh, um, with intention and, and a sense of uh, expedience because uh, we're, we're we're certainly not doing that now. I want to go back to um, your comments about housing first as a strategy, and I think you had made the, the observation that um, various reports you know have not have not looked favorably on on encampments and that sort of thing, and recommended a different approach. One of the things that I've heard is a pushback for housing first is, or housing first as manifested in four walls and a roof mm-hmm. is, you know, there are people who have been living outside in some cases for years and the housing that we think of as housing of four, four walls and a roof, they may just psychologically not be ready for that yet, mm-hmm. but they are ready for maybe a more stable living condition. So I just wanted to see what your reflections were on on that type of a, a situation. Like I know that some of the tiny, the, the little house villages mm-hmm. have tent platforms, for example, which I think are, are meant to address that that particular need. I just want to see what you thought about that. Yeah, I think um, I, I, will, I actually I wanted to see evidence based solutions and, and data on this because there's a lot of anecdotal uh, information floating around and, on, and on both sides, right? on, on both sides. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I think I think we need to move past anecdotes and really stack it in, into evidence um, th- this is and yeah to your point I, I think there's going to be a certain segment of our population uh, that is resistant to housing and would prefer more of a transitional um, transitional uh, aspect to it and I think that's a very small part of it right now the encampments exist because we do not properly operate our uh, our, our housing stock as reiterated in, in those reports and so I think that I think that comes up as, as, as an excuse to say oh well these are why we need more encampments and um, as Barbara Poppy and the experts that we hired said the encampments are a distraction so yes so I assume there are going to be some people that are going to want to live off the grid and not want to be part of society. And the idea of um, living kind of in a quieter place and uh, with functioning water and stuff is going to be disorienting. Um, but that also speaks to a need of persistent and consistent outreach that helps transition people out of that uh, quickly. 
you know, there, there could be a, a legitimate need to have, um, transitional encampments like, like that you speak of, but we don't capture the data, um, to, to, to verify that. And we don't, um, you know, so we can't say that beyond anecdotes. And so, so I, what I would say is let's capture that data, but also let's bring in the technology so that we aren't leaving people out and that we actually have, we're using our housing stock efficiently, uh, in that because the encampments end up being a distraction. Um, and what they also do is, um, people get kicked out of encampments a lot. And what they end up doing is the people will move down the street and they'll, they'll, uh, set up their tents in a park and, or in other places that aren't really the best, uh, places for them to, to set up. And so there's, uh, there's just a lot of issues that kind of come across, uh, that are side effects of these encampments as well that, that need to be addressed. But I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna say with absolute certainty, um, that, um, you're wrong. I think, I think, like I said, I think there are definitely portions of society that have been out there for 10 years that would have a very difficult time just walking into a, a quiet, um, you know, four walls or roof and a door. Um, and, but that again speaks to the need for more outreach and the need to, me- the need to measure our strategies so, so we know how best to help people that are, that are in that situation. And, uh, and so, yeah. Um, maybe, you know, one of the last questions here, what, what does solving homelessness look like from your perspective? Yeah, I I think solving homelessness looks like, uh, making sure that people have access to housing, uh, immediately making sure people have access to detox and rehab services immediately and making sure people have access to mental health, um, uh, services immediately. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, fix, fixing the structural and technological issues in our homeless services and developing that coordinated care system will set the foundation to do exactly what I, I just described. Um, we're always going to have people that want to live outside. We're always going to have uh, people suffering from uh, addiction and opioid uh, issues or alcohol issues. We're going to have people that are fleeing sexual abusive uh, uh, places, uh, you know, homes and and, and that. Uh, I I think having um, it be where those services become on demand is what solving solving it looks like. Uh, And I think we can get there. We have the technological know-how. Seattle has proven that they'll tax themselves uh, when uh, when it's needed. They're a very compassionate society. I think we have the ability to leverage um, the large corporations around us uh, and ask them to help us participate and solve these issues. Um, You know, we have have Zillow and Expedia here. There's no reason we can't develop a uh, a public-private partnership to help build the system that would manage our housing stock. I mean, they literally have the technological backbone within a, a, a mile from where you and I sit today. Um, we have the capability. We have the will here in Seattle. I think we just need a, a, a person in place that's going to say, "Hey, let's get all the let's get all the bright minds together. Let's solve this um, with compassion uh, through technology, but with, most importantly, with the goal of helping our homeless neighbors." And, and so, um, I, I, all 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 the ingredients are here. We just need to have someone to help us put it together, and uh, and or as a community, let's put it together and, and solve this because it, it is a completely solvable system or issue. We've seen it uh, in Boston, Salt Lake City, and Houston where they're moving people off the streets. 
And, and so I think Seattle can do it better. I think we should build upon their successes, emulate what they've done, but make it better. And, and, and it w- without question, we have that capability here in Seattle. And what's the most surprising thing you've learned since you've been engaged in this conversation? Uh, I, I think it's just the overall vitriol um, kind of coming from both sides. Uh, and it's I think we have to get past the point where we're just so ready to punch each other in the nose and really just sit down and listen to each other because oftentimes – uh, a conversation can't even happen. Uh, in, 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 right off the bat, you have people just throwing out names or calling you NIMBY or, and you have people on the other side or, you know, like you, you know, you guys are just crazy socialists and, and stuff. And the fact of the matter is we all want the same exact thing and we all have great ideas and we need to stop the name calling and we need to stop the, uh, the finger pointing and we need to stop trying to punch one another in the nose and, and, and say, Hey, Let's, let's put our heads together. Let's put our compassion together and let's, uh, let's solve this issue because right now we have 3,874 people out, uh, living on the streets that desperately need our help. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at the Sound of Y V E. S.com.